fill your house with stacks of books in all the crannies and all the nooks, so said Dr. Seuss. And my guest today has certainly played his part in filling nooks and crannies across the country and indeed around the world with his own stack of books. So Michael Morpurgo is perhaps the defining children's author of the past 50 years. Noted for his magical storytelling, he has brought wonder to children and adults alike with his best-selling books, including War Horse, Private Peaceful, The Butterfly Lion, and 130 more. A former children's laureate, for Michael, books are a passion, a mission, and a calling. They narrate the tales of our time through the lens of love, hope, and wonder. From tragedy to triumph, uplifting and inspiring, helping children to understand the world in which they themselves are growing. So, Michael, welcome to Changemakers. Michael, wonderful to have you on the show. Well, I tell you what, it's a pleasure for me as a dad with two young girls <laughs> who are addicts of the Morpurgo book. So I, I feel under extreme pressure to get this interview absolutely right, on, on, <laughs> at least for those two, uh, two listeners. Now, always look on the bright side of life. That was your... Um, lockdown um, piece of advice that, that accompanies this episode. How are you doing that um, in, in these very, very testing times? Well, put it this way, it's easy to hand out advice. It's um, not quite so easy to follow it yourself. The first time through, I think I was really quite, um, it's quite good. I kept my pecker up. I uh, got into a writing mode. I did a lot of, I think, very good writing. I was very pleased with it. My wife was very, Claire was very involved with fundraising. We were just keeping busy, busy, busy fundraising for Farms for City Children, a charity she started. I was busy writing. Keeping busy was fine. The second time, I found it harder. Um, I think it's because I hadn't seen people. Mm. Um, I hadn't seen my grandchildren. I saw them a little bit in between, but really hardly at all. I hardly see my children. We Zoom, um, that's, and that's fine. I don't know quite what we do without Zooming and phoning. That's been, been good. But you miss that there's a texture of life which isn't there. And there are uh, days and particularly nights when, uh, when you struggle. The difficulty really is to keep your mind on what it is you're doing. If, you let, if I let my mind wander to what's going on in the world, uh, the suffering that's going on, all over the world and the way we are dealing with it uh, and the sadness in people's lives, the people we've lost. Um, if you get involved in all that and you, it's very difficult to climb out of it. So I, I do find that the most important thing is to get a good night's sleep, to have plenty to do each day, to plot and plan that way and just keep in touch over the phone. And it, and it strikes me though that a lot of this is also though about about your outlook because I was reading a a 2019 um, Guardian article where I would probably summarize it as the case for kindness um, that actually you said I think kindness is very important um, it's thought to be soft and liberal to be kind well no it's not if some if someone is starving in the street you feed them but I mean it strikes me that you know, that idea of paying it forward, giving the gift of that that kindness is also an important part of, of your outlook. Is, 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 is that something you would agree with? Um, well, I hope so. I have my moments when I'm not kind, I'm sure of that. Um, but I, what I do know is that that is the only way we cure the difficulties of um, both our society and, and, and the world is through empathy. And that's why books are so important. It's the understanding of others. Um, and one thing about the books that has been fascinating for me, really, is that they are written about, I don't know, I think it's about 60 or 70 different countries all over the world and their history, their take on the world and the take of animals on the world. 
I think this, this whole question we have of getting away from being self-centered, of thinking that who we are um, and what we do is the most important. I think we've got to grow out of that and kindness helps you to do that. And uh, mm. it's a, it is, but it is empathy. Empathy is the thinking yourself into another person's history, another country's history, and then coming to an understanding of people. And that inevitably leads to kindness. If you think, for instance, let's go to animals, why not? If you think of a horse, and I've written about a horse. Um, in fact, there's a book I wrote, which was co-written by a horse, really. The horse told the story. Um, to, to glean how to do that was about observing a horse, observing my wife, Claire, with a horse, my daughter, Roz, with a horse, seeing the empathy between them, seeing what they were giving to each other, the kindness they were giving to each other, helped me, I suppose, write that book. So it helps mm. me as a writer, it helps me as a person. And I suppose that creative spark, that sudden burst of imagination, I mean, let's let's stay with the horse you 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 see the horse and as the writer tell us what you tell us what you saw tell us about you know i, I guess the sort of the inspiration that suddenly lit up in your mind well, the, the inspiration is, and it very often is is, is is something practical um i i, I met a, 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 a talking about 35 years ago now i met um more 40 years I met in my pub in Devon, where I'm speaking to you from, uh, one of the three old men who lived in the village who had been to the First World War, and I knew it, Will Fellis, and I got talking to him, and he told me, told me, told me about the First World War, and how he'd been there as a 17-year-old there with his horse, and I sort of picked up on that story and thought that was interesting, and thought, well, yes, I'll read around the First World War, and what did I discover? I discovered that we lost something in the region of a million men, and there were about a million horses that didn't come back as well. So I knew there was some kind of connection here between the men and the horses, and because of what he'd said about his horse being his best friend in the First World War. But I didn't really, I didn't know what to do with that until I thought, well, actually I've read, ever since I was a student, a boy, I've been reading poetry about the First World War. I've been reading novels about the First World War amongst other subjects, and they tend to be written from one side or the other. They mm. German, they can be French, they can be British or American, whatever, but usually from one side, not always, but usually. Here's an opportunity, I thought, to write that story, tell that story of that war, about the universal suffering of that war, um, through a neutral uh, narrator. And the only neutral narrator I could think of was a horse, and then I thought, stupid. Uh, that I know it's been done before really rather well by Anna Sewell in Black Beauty so probably don't go there again that wouldn't be a very good idea it's be thought sentimental now I don't think it is sentimental but it could be thought it was sentimental and then uh, you just get lucky I get really lucky and in this particular case I witnessed uh, in this project my wife started Farms of City Children a small boy Billy was called uh, in his slippers and dressing gown, uh, he was a non-speaking boy. He had never spoken since he'd been at the school that he came with. And the teachers thought he didn't speak. He hadn't spoken all week that he'd been with us. And I came in to read him a story on a November night and it was dark in the stable yard. And what did I find? I found this boy in his dressing gown and his slippers talking to the horse, talking 19 to the dozen. And then I thought there was something quite wonderful. And that was that the horse was listening. And then I thought, well, isn't that sentimental? And then I thought, no, this mm -hmm. is a sentient creature who feels joy, who feels cruelty, who feels pain. And this horse realized that it was important 
to be there. They trusted each other. They were friends. In a way, they loved each other. So it's not sentimental. It's something that's really genuine. And that enabled me to write the book. So it's things like that. It's, um, I just get lucky. Oh, well, I mean, noticing the world around you. I mean, you talked about the importance for everyone to put pen to paper, that writing will help you understand things better, help you get through and out, out of the other side. I mean, but, you know, a lot of people will be sat here thinking, well, I, I mean, I would love to write. Um, what, what, are, what, does the, what does the master storyteller advise those that are sat there thinking, well, if I was going to put pen to paper after listening to an interview like this, is it more than just starting writing and just, just get on with it? Or are there, are there tips that you give? Um, there are tips, but I mean, the most important thing is to realise that you can do it. Um, we can all tell stories. So much of it is a matter of confidence. So much is also about having something to write about. So when and children very often do ask me, oh, I want to be a writer, how do I start? Well, the first answer is, well, you live an interesting life. You know, you go places, you open your eyes, you open your ears, you open your heart and you keep it open and you remain vulnerable. That's mm. very, very important. Live an interesting life, read books, listen to what people say. Um, and then only write, only write about something that really you're passionate about, that you're mm. really interested in. Don't do it as a, simply an exercise to make sure your punctuation is right. It's that sort of thing, really. Right. So let's take you right back, because I'm, I'm sort of thinking, at what point did the sort of the imagination really sort of kick in? Was it, I mean, I, I noticed that your best book, the best story, The Elephant's Child from the, from the Just So Stories um, by Rudyard Kipling, I have to say, I, I grew up with exactly that same story, the great grey green greasy Limpopo River, loved yeah. it, absolutely loved it. And my daughter loved it. I mean, in terms of that idea about, satiable curiosity the idea that actually there was there was something there to learn and um, is that where I mean were these the sort of the early sort of signals yeah. the sparks if you like it, it was my mother my mother loved Kipling um Kipling's very much more popular in those days than he is now um and she used to read me that story and I loved it so much and she was an, she was an actress she read beautifully and she'd come 20 minutes every night and read to my brother Peter and me and we loved that story and she would read all sorts of poetry, Dunamere and Macefield and all these. So we grew up with the sound of her voice making music. And when you read The Elephant's Child, it, it, we call it a story, we call it prose, but it isn't. It's a, it's a prose poem and it's mm. both funny and it's moving and it's got a great triumph for a child. The great triumph for the child is that the, the elephant, the young elephant, gets his own back on the people who've been messing him around and beating him and hitting him. It's just the most wonderful story to grow up with. But it was because my mother used to do this every single night. She would read and read and read. So I got an ear, an ear, I suppose. Mm. And it's rhythmical as well, is it? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. It was wrecked, I have to say, when I went to school. Um, not the school's fault. I go to the school a lot these days called St. Matthias in the, in, in the Warwick Road in London. Wonderful to the school now. But it wasn't then. And there were teachers then who simply took the idea of books and thought, well, what we're going to do with this is we're going to um, do what's called parsing and we're going to do what's called punctuation and everything had a test. And Michael um, Morpurgo tended not to do terribly well in these tests. And when you don't do well in something, of course, you go away from it. And I really didn't read and didn't read. And I only came to writing because later on, when I left school and did a bit of a stint in the army I, and university, I went into teaching. Mm. And I found myself in front of 35 
six year uh, uh, year sixes. Um, in a mobile classroom, I seem to remember, at a school called Wickhambrew Primary School outside Canterbury. And I was um, really not knowing what to do as a teacher. And I discovered, because the head teacher was a genius, she said, look, at the end of a school day, do not, whatever you do, bore the children anymore. You're tired, they're tired. What they want is a story. Tell them a story. Read them a story. And I remember reading stories, running out of ones that were good and enjoying it. And I could see that was the one thing that I had 35 kids completely focused on what we were all doing together. And I ran out of stories to read. And so I dared, I was dared actually by my wife, Claire, to tell one of my own, make it up, he said. She said, you know, go in there, you're a pretty good liar. Go in there and tell them a story. And so I went there, I told them a story. And what was wonderful was, I don't think it was a particularly good story, but the lovely thing was that I noticed they were listening mm. and they were very focused, you know, and so I thought, well, I'll do it again. I mean, it's funny, but one of my, um, one of my daughter's um, teachers, she wanted to know that her specific question was, why did you stop teaching? Because, and, and also I suppose if I was to add an adjunct onto that, is that there, I mean, teachers are often a great source of great writers. Um, yeah. A lot of them go off and do everything from spy thrillers to children's literature. In terms of that decision to move from teaching into full-time writing, t- tell us a little bit about that. Well, I don't think the truth is I've ever moved. I mean, what, what I still do now, what I did in front of my class of year sixes in the mobile classroom, I might write it down, I might be considerably older by about 50 years, but I still do the same thing. I make up a story and I tell it, and I tell it with complete conviction. I look a child in the eye while I'm telling it, and it may be down into a book, it may be into a film or a play, but it's the same thing. It's telling a story as if you really, really mean it, and passing on what it is that you care about to children. I did that when I was a teacher, and I've really been a teacher ever since. And I'm one of those teachers. There are an awful lot of teachers who become writers, and you're quite right. They go into all sorts of genre, one sort or another. I mean, I stayed writing to children because children really interest me. I mean, I was one once. Um, I, have a, I was a really young father, far too young. Um, and I was a really young grandfather, and I'm a great grandfather. And we have these kids who come down to the farm and live and work on the farm, and I go to read them in the evening sometimes, or I used to when I was younger. So I've been go- working with children all my life. They interest me. I don't like them all anymore than I like all grown-up children. Mm. But I find them fascinating, and I'll tell you why. It's because they come to life spontaneously. They respond as they feel, as they think. There is, they haven't learned hypocrisy. Um, they speak as they find. And I find that very helpful to me as a grown-up child. When I'm writing about them, I, I just think that the way they grow and the way they see the world so clearly, um, I like to re- reflect that in the books. And do you think there is something of that childlike, I don't know, joy, that kind of creativity? I, I'm just wondering, is there a point in time where where we lose that, or a lot of people lose that. I mean, is there, I mean, I read something that you, you wrote about the ability of children to see things in very different ways. And actually that made them great for technology and things that you were observing right now. But I'm wondering in terms of if, if you were to, if you were to look at the, I guess the, the special something that you are championing, that you are seeing in the world and, 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 and how fragile is that? How, when do we lose it, I guess? Well, we are inclined to lose it. I think it can get squeezed out of us as, as we grow up. 
I mean, I don't, it's rather like this, which I, mean, I think we all know is that if you know you put a child in water very, very young, there is no fear. Uh, and they learn to be confident. The same thing when they're learning to walk. Uh, if, if you do it gently and do it the right way, they learn to walk, they learn to swim, they learn to do all these things. When you bring, the moment you bring fear into a child's life, uh, whether it's at home or in the classroom or wherever, you inhibit uh, massively. And I mean, the great thing that children have got is this terrific sense of the creativity. You know, I see it in my grandchildren, every painting that they do. I can't, I can't do that. I can't do that sort of extraordinary flair. They're not worried about the, the line or whether that looks right. They just do it. It's so easy to squeeze that out by judging it, by testing it, by then somehow um, separating people into those who can and those who can't. Um, those who can may do fine, except that they've been tested in such a way which corrals them as well, intellectually and emotionally, which we really, we don't seem to realize at all. But the people that I'm most concerned about are those ones who are left behind and find no place in the world. And they've lost their creativity too. And sometimes they lose hope. And then there's this huge division that comes, which we have in our society between those uh, who have and those who have not. And it hardens itself with a great gap in between. And that's what we haven't got over. And it's only education that can ever, ever get us out of that trap. Mm. Because all children, this is what you, we learn from countries like Finland and Denmark. All children who have access to really good schools and really good teachers, and in, in, they can grow, they can be children for much, much longer. And I think that's very, very important to us that we, that we learn that, that the child in us must have time to grow and it mustn't be squeezed out of us. So I was thinking about your journey, um, not, not only as a, as a teacher, but as a, as a Sandhurst cadet, Sandhurst of Scribbling, growing up and being on the move with your family. When did your writing start, your very first story? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, again, it was good luck being a teacher at this Wickenbrew Primary School where I was. Um, I was, would tell my stories out loud and um, the head teacher heard about it. Mrs. Skiffington, she was called, wonderful name. And Mrs. Skiffington came into the class one day and listened to me telling my stories, sort of OP like this. And she came up to me afterwards and said, Michael, that was very, very good. I want you to write it out for me and give it to me on Monday morning. Um, and she meant it. I could tell she meant it. And it encouraged me. Well, I, you know, so I went and wrote it out. And she happened to know someone who worked at Macmillan. And we sent the story off. And I got this wonderful letter back, which I have somewhere, I'm sure. Um, Dear Mr. Morpingo, because they always spell the name wrong. Dear Mr. Morpingo, um, we've read your uh, book. It never rained. Uh, lovely story. Would you write five more? Um, and we'll put it in a little book and we'll pay you £75. And I suddenly thought, this is this is ridiculous. Some, I really love doing this and someone's going to pay me some money for it. So that was the beginning. It's oh, a little yes. thing. And, and then the book came out. And of course, you then you've got the book in your hands. And remember I talked so how, about how old? Just tell you, what, what age were you at this time? Oh, 29, 30, that sort of age. Quite late. I was quite a late starter. I think I yeah. told you, I really wasn't into reading and writing and stuff like that at all. It was because I was a teacher. It genuinely was because I was trying to keep Year six is quiet between three o'clock and half past three. So, and so, that could, so, so no scribbling before then? No, no experimentation with stories? No, no, no. Anytime I put pen to paper when I was younger than that, it had always been a, a disaster. I mean, I went to university and I got a third class degree at, from King's College London. I'm very grateful they gave me a degree at all. Um, but um, I remember being, uh, I, I, how shall I say, 
it's one of those things, that, the degree that you get doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do with it afterwards. And there are plenty of interesting people with third class degrees. Philip Pullman's another one. So I'm in very good company. So much I want to cover, but I just want to just on the end of that is to say, so a lot of what you're talking about will, I guess, challenge, establish wisdom on the way that we teach currently um, through exams um, on this this issue about about fear um, and the challenge that that then brings to creative expression. Of course, 2020 is is a year where a great many fears have, have, have been exposed by not only the virus, but all of the challenges that come in its wake economically, socially and culturally. Yes. Do you see this, therefore, as as just a very dark time or, or, or are there magical things that you're seeing that may well offer the glimpses of better times ahead? I would sort of veer strongly towards the latter. Um, I think we have an opportunity um, just at the moment when we we really are, we're not all in the same place, of course, in terms of either age or uh, our socioeconomic uh, position in the world, but we are all um, into this deep, deep problem of the pandemic. It is effectively, in, I mean, I'm 77, um, I have no memory of uh, the Second World War. I was born in 1943, and the aftermath of it. And politically and socially, uh, extraordinary things did happen because people looked at the future then. They thought, no, we have got to make a better world out of this. We've been through this horror. Uh, and we did do this thing all together. We've got through, we've got out the other side. There's grief, there's longing. We've done it all together. Let's set up a National Health Service. Let's have an education system, 1944 Education Act. All this sort of thing happened just towards the end of that war and after the war, people thought we've got to put this right. And the United Nations was set up, was it 47? I can't remember, 48. That sort of, it was this whole, we have got to do this. We've got to get it right this time. We cannot, cannot afford and mustn't mm. go down this road again. And that is the, the possibility we've got now. Um, and what's been wonderful now uh, with, with this vaccine, uh, and until idiotic politicians start wrapping flags around it, is that this research has gone on all over the world. And what seems to be being produced now is the extraordinary genius of mankind to find a way that we can all, all find a way out of this. But if all that happens is that the chemical companies make lots and lots of money and the people in the poor of the part of the world don't get it, not only is it wrong, it's also self-defeating. Mm. Because unless, it, unless it's defeated everywhere, it's not going to be defeated. You know? but, but, but in terms of that story, because it is a story as, as mm. of, of incredible collaboration, yeah. incredible innovation done at lightning speed, the mood of the world, or certainly the way that I guess it's narrated through our news channels, doesn't seem to capture that magic, that something that, is so miraculous has been done so quickly. Even just a very short few weeks ago, we were listening to lots of people that were talking about if now it is firmly the story of when. In terms of the feelings that you need to evoke to inspire people, to make them feel hopeful, 
you would have thought that this would be the story of all stories. In terms of what's missing from the script as a master storyteller, what, what, what are we missing? What we're missing at the moment, to me, is, is the genuine sense that we are together. I think what's um, already happening is that there's a, there are divisions creeping in everywhere. Uh, people feeling upset about some other people not being in the, such, such a severe lockdown as others. There's all sorts of stuff going on. We are more divided at the moment than we've ever been. I mean, we are leaving Europe. Okay, let's get that done with. There is a decent uh, chance that Scotland will hide itself off. So the United Kingdom, and if you like, a united Europe, all that's being fractured. And the only thing that's going to hold it together, I think, is people's understanding of each other and the need for each other. And until we get that right, and we won't get it right, uh, until people are treated fairly, everyone has to feel that they have an investment, that they belong. So, for instance, at the moment, we have plenty of people standing up, again, usually with lecterns and union jacks behind them, telling us what we should do, you know, all these sort of slogans about what we should do. Um, and indeed, they're very often very sensible slogans. But the problem is that we don't trust the people who are telling us uh, what we should do. Why don't we trust it? Because we have plenty of evidence in the past that they don't tell enough truth. That's the great problem we've got. We have lost confidence massively in these people. And they've got to get back to the stage where everyone is treated right, everyone feels they're being treated right, and that we are not being told half-truths or even not-truths. We've got to get past this situation, and we're not getting past it at the moment. I mean, mm -hmm. I, when I listen to scientists who are talking about this pandemic, I get the feeling, okay, you, you tell us what you do know, you tell us what you don't know, that's it. But the minute you put a political slant on it, and you start talking about the economy and all the rest of it, it gets a muddled, um, there's a muddled message coming up. And I know, and they know, and everyone knows that there are so many people who have so little who are going to have even less. That's what seems to be happening at the mm. moment. Uh, but it's, it's funny, listening to the storyteller is, you know, because so much of what, what you're talking about and the way that politicians will speak or or leaders will speak is about the choice of language, the choice of words that they use yeah. to explain things. I mean, I'm, I'm wondering, do, do you have a view on it in terms of, from that perspective, in terms of how we narrate the story of our times? Yes, do you remember I told you when I was teaching, the one thing I did when I was telling a story is I looked the children in the eye and told it straight. I just think telling it straight is so, so important that flanneling around, using extravagant language, um, repeating yourself and mm. boring. You don't do that with language. You don't do that when you're telling a story. But, but, but it's also it's one of the things that a lot of people will say about you is that you do you do call it straight. You know, you, you have written about war, climate change, refugees. I mean, some of the really big issue issues of our, of our time. In terms of how you do that in a way that maintains a positive disposition because you know your own story you know you've had your own challenges um both in terms of of, of some some of the recent health things all the sorts of i guess those things that you've had to look at in the face the overcoming them in terms of how you maintain a positive disposition in the face of 
very difficult circumstances. What, what is your own experience? What, what's, what's the wisdom you would give on that? Well, it does. Some, I suppose it helps that you're 77. You can, you, you might, my wife and I were talking about this the other day. Do we get wiser as we get older? And of course, we don't. Uh, we just get older. Uh, but I think what does happen is you've had enough experience of this and that to drop some of the rubbish to one side. And I certainly feel uh, the, the longer I live, the more I want to hand over the way the world is going to be to young people. Um, I'm, when it comes to climate, uh, it is evident to me that, that, that they understand quicker than we do. Um, because they're not having to make the absurd compromises we've had to make in terms of giving ourselves this comfortable and prosperous existence. They know how urgent it is. And it's not just one person, you know, this is all over the world. I'm finding younger people, university students, um, kids in schools, they're becoming more and more aware. Yes, we have David Attenborough and these great people um, and Greta to, to thank for, for this kind of awareness. But there are also uh, books out there and there are families out there who are moving us all towards an understanding of our place in the world and towards each other. It is through the children going to be a brighter place, that's for sure. I think it's happening already. I don't think there's any doubt now that, that the governments, including ours, is moving towards slowly, slowly dragging its feet towards a, a position where they know we have to get climate change dealt with otherwise the pandemic will look like child's play mm. um, and I think it's the children who've been leading this you know it's um it's and I do believe in this terrific enthusiasm I did a wonderful thing I'll just tell you briefly I did a wonderful thing just recently which lifted my spirits enormously it's what they're good for they lift spirits these kids I did a, a recording uh, with some wonderful people called the Kane Mason um, family um, musicians seven of them you know them do you with olivia coleman and as i understand that's right absolutely we did this yep. recording for the carnival of the animals and i was there for a couple of days um watching these seven young people um playing their hearts out with this terrific enthusiasm and understanding and empathy of each other's positions so you had a 12 year old and a 24 year old they were better musicians some one might have been better than the other but they all were doing this thing together and they understood about togetherness and the instinct, the instinct of kindness towards each other, coming back again and again, kindness towards each other, appreciation of each other. And they made this wonderful music. And that was joyous to see children doing that today. So to be part of that, if you're an old git, which I am, is, <laughs> is, is wonderful. Not an old git, but what I am thinking of as, I'll, as my last question to you is that, you know, your, your picture book, Grandpa Christmas, um, yes is a letter from a grandfather to his granddaughter. Um, yes. I mean, effectively to do the things that you're saying, to, to protect the world, to continue um, that, that, yes. that job. Now, you, you have eight, eight grandchildren of your own, a great-grandchild on, on the way, I understand. And I'm sort of no, thinking- no, great-grandchild's great here. Great-grandchild is here. Oh, congratulations. Right, so, so, the, so the tribe is even bigger. And I'm sort of thinking, here we are um, on, on the verge of, of Christmas 2020. And I suppose for, for, for many people, readers around the world, um, you are our own um, Grandpa Christmas, I suppose, in terms of the, the message that you would give um, to leave us with, I guess, in terms of how the world plays out in these extraordinary times 
and what your young readers, this new generation, should take from it. Your, your final message, Michael, if I, if I may ask you for it. Well, and it sounds corny, but the final message is the one I was given when I was little. Christmas is, is about nothing to do with um, just eating turkey and presents. It's, a, it's finally about a, an understanding of the importance of goodwill and goodwill and kindness is what's going to get us through as a society, as a people, as families. Um, and we should go away with that. And if it takes a carol to get us thinking about it, then then let's do it. You don't have to be Christian to do that. You don't have to be Muslim to do that. You just have to know that kindness is at the heart, loving one another, finally. Mm. Michael, thank you so much. Kindness is at the heart of loving one another and couldn't agree more. And thank you to my guest, Sir Michael Morpurgo, the author who brings to life the wonder of the world around us through the power of imagination. And it's that magic that is a source of inspiration and a challenge always to see the good in ourselves and each other, that, that kindness, the brighter side of life, which I think has been very much the mission of these Changemaker episodes in 2020. So sending you all the very best for the festive season and the year ahead. And I look forward to joining you again soon in 2021. Until then, 